0: My brother Ted Sleeper is going to uh, address you this this evening and has outlined, basically, uh, some of the points he's going to touch on. Uh, I'm going to turn the whole show over to Ted and let him handle the uh, presentation and and also your questions afterwards. So, uh, And we will allow for a time of discussion and questioning,
1: which is only appropriate. So without saying more, I just don't mind if I
0: sit. That's not to uh, take the posture of the rabbis of old, which sat too. I'd like to address first of all why we're considering the subject at all. And then to give you a brief idea of what we would like to accomplish tonight, and then the rest of this is uh, fairly straightforward as an outline of uh, where we're headed. To me, and you'll have to pardon me, I've spent a few uh, late nights preparing. So, if there is something in the course of all of this that uh, doesn't seem to come out right, please feel free later on to ask questions about that. The intent is to be able to represent to you, as best as I can, the viewpoint of a man that has been dead many, many years, but whose works are still used by many brothers and sisters. Now. First, I have two basic reasons that I'd like to put forward to you why we need to consider this subject. The first of these is that the beliefs of many unamended brethren and sisters are reflected uh, or have uh, been developed through their association, through their reading of the expositions of this man, Thomas Williams. He was a very eloquent man, in fact, eloquent with words to the point that he was somewhat handicapped, I guess, in writing, and he dictated virtually uh, this book, for example, here, The World's Redemption, of which I'll be quoting from later.
1: Uh,
0: and that's how it came into print form. Now, I want to stress to you my conviction at the beginning that these animated brethren and sisters of which we're speaking that have learned their understanding of the truth through Thomas Williams represent moderate brethren and sisters with whom we would in a reunion be associated with and ought to be associated with. And to me it's of paramount importance for each one of you here tonight to understand the soundness of their faith and belief in Christ and to understand that there is, in fact, no grounds for maintaining a wall of separation between ourselves and these brethren. A second aspect of this uh, subject tonight, which will come out in due course, has to do with... Well, let me. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Another reason for looking at this subject is because this particular man, Thomas Williams, and those who have greatly benefited by his lucid expositions of the Scripture, he himself has, in times past, to the present day, been slandered and evil-spoken again without just cause. That is my opinion. And second of all, brethren and sisters, good brethren and sisters who read their Bible as much as we do, who patiently consider what is taught therein, have been made for many, many years to feel ashamed that they somehow learned the truth by this man. And it is my conviction that... This misrepresentation of Thomas Williams must come to its natural end. It's my conviction that those brethren with, who are associated with this teaching no longer be made to feel ashamed that they learned the truth by this man. So we have two objectives then. and this, Well, we have this reason then, these two reasons for considering this subject tonight. The first, these are brethren, moderate brethren, sound in faith, with whom we would be asked to join together in fellowship, and two, it is time for us to remove the shame attached to this man and his teaching. Now, the task before us tonight is twofold, based upon this need, as I've expressed, to examine the subject. The first of these tasks, and the main one, is to enter into the teaching of Thomas Williams. And what I'm asking of each one of you tonight is to not to stand in objective uh, consideration, so to speak, standing outside and dissecting what you hear. I'm asking you for the moment to abandon that. To pick it up later, yes, but for the moment to abandon that And try to understand and feel what this man was understanding and feeling as he lived in his day and as he confronted the world in which he confronted in his day. And try to see things from his point of view. This is the goal of looking at his teachings. But you can begin to to be sensitive while you may not agree with all expositions of scripture but at least you may be sensitive to how he saw it and how he in fact used this as a tremendous uh, sword if you like of the spirit in defense of the faith in the day that he lived. We are also going to within this framework of looking at Thomas Williams and I want you to Think upon this as we go through this uh, discussion tonight. We are going to discover the importance of seeing the limitations that this man works within in his own expositions of the scripture. And in doing that, I hope tonight, brethren and sisters, we will begin to discern another important fact about the task tonight, and as we look at reunion, we must consider the danger of overemphasis, of arriving at an understanding of scripture, and feeling that this is all there is to understand, and placing so much emphasis upon that particular aspect that we understood, that we lose balance. And this is the point at which we'll discuss this problem. And I think it's important for each one to reflect upon your own beliefs right now. What you believe and perceive to be important in the truth is conditioned by the environment, the circumstance that you live in, the circumstances of your life. You may, because you happen to be talking with an evangelical friend, be emphasizing certain aspects of Uh, maybe Holy Spirit you may be concerned about that subject perhaps if you are defending the truth against immortal soulism and its related uh, errors you're going to see more brightly this aspect of the truth than you will others the danger brethren and sisters as I said a few minutes ago is that we sometimes feel that, at that moment in our life, we have apprehended all there is about that particular subject. And so, we begin to say, this is the only way to see it. And mind you, brethren, from both sides of this problem, have fallen into that destructive snare, in overemphasizing that aspect of their understanding and claiming it to be the only right and full full approach. Enough said on that. Let's move on, then, to consider something about Thomas Williams before we get into his teaching, and I'll have a little group interaction in a moment to get us started on that. Taking in mind what I just said, that people understand certain things about the Scripture often because of certain things that they are experiencing in their own life or certain conditions uh, that surround them, it's critical that you understand the world in which Thomas Williams lived and what he perceived to be his mission, so to speak. He lived in a world which was at the turn of the century where there was a great deal of religious fervor, where people held strongly particular religious points of view and were willing to debate about them extensively. Nights, You come here one night, they would spend seven nights in debate, long debates at that. You must understand that Thomas Williams, a man convinced of the truth through his uh, association with Robert Roberts and having learned the truth from Robert Roberts, was a man with a great amount of zeal and he went out and he confronted that religious world. He confronted the prominent doctrines about the immortal soul especially. And to give you an example three quarters of this book if you were to read it is concerned with argument after argument why the biblical teaching of resurrection is correct and the only hope that man has as opposed to immortal souls or nothingness with no hope as an uh, atheist might uh, believe so he spent his life refuting errors these basic fundamental errors of Christendom and you must understand that he was appealing not to Christadelphians in the 20th century and trying to convince them about special arguments and, and obscure subjects. He was right out there in the, on the, the front line, so to speak, waging as a war against those doctrinal errors that were prevalent in his day as much as they're prevalent in ours. If you'll keep this in view, I think you'll begin to appreciate his approach to a world he perceived to be dying, hopeless and lost, and how he held out a message of hope through the scriptures to those who would hear. Now, that's enough the preface. What I'd like to do to get you started is I'd like to draw a little chart up here with your assistance a list of, well, a contrast, if you like, of what it was like Going back to the beginning now, before Adam and Eve sinned, and what the world is like, what life is now like after they sinned. Just to draw in sharp relief what is common understanding for all of us. Now, let's start here. I've got just three areas that I'd like to address. What was the condition of the earth before Adam and Eve sinned?
1: Marco, before. What?
0: No, no, no. After Adam and Eve were in the garden, before they sinned. Very
1: good. It's very good. Okay.
0: Any yes, other wrong words that you would associate with the condition of the earth?
1: What was that like? Huh? Very
0: productive.
1: Productive,
0: sure. Okay. What else? Anything else that you can think of?
1: Sterile. Huh? Sterile. Sterile. <laughs> well, I'm tainted. <laughs> I'm, tainted. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm tainted. Okay. Ask
0: something. what that means. <laughs> Any other uh, ideas, things you associate with the garden before? The, the condition of the earth now, that specific? Peaceful. okay. No
1: depth.
0: Uh, no death. okay. Well, I'm going to put that in brackets. That's kind of in another questionnaire that I have. But the earth itself, and what about the animal population upon the earth? What kind of condition were they in? Or just the interaction of all the things in creation?
1: Okay. I'm
0: looking for one other. nice. harmony <laughs> sort of appeals to me. Okay. What would you see then after... What was the condition of the earth now after Adam and Eve had sinned? What came as a result of those sins?
1: Cursed. Yeah? The earth was cursed and, uh, would you say, black the cold in its productivity? It didn't produce quite as well as it uh, did before? Yeah. corn. It produced more than just the corn. yeah. Thistles. We, uh, well, let's put the story,
0: put it all in that Wait, way. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What
1: else?
0: Okay. Oh. What else?
1: Okay. Hard labor was no longer pleasant labor. Hard labor. The harmony was broken. Okay?
0: Disharmony. Decay. Okay, we'll pick up the decay and death, actually, in just a minute. Uh, dis, did I said dispeaceful. That tells you what I was thinking. <laughs> How about disharmony? Okay, disharmony, uh, it was, what? It, well, that's, the world wasn't, but men um, were, we'll get to that uh, one second. That was disharmony. I was gonna put kind of um, enmity. Perhaps that would.
1: How about fear? Fear.
0: Alright? Fear. Okay? This then gives us a general idea of what was in the earth. The earth itself was once very good and productive and untainted and peaceful and full of harmony and a joyful place to be in. After Adam and Eve sin, we experience a world that has been cursed. full of weeds and cares and it's less productive. It takes hard labor. Inmity replaces the peace that once existed. Uh, there's decay, there's disharmony, there's fear. Now, how would you describe the condition of man before the fall? Now that will pick up some of these words that we may have used already. How would you describe man? Contented. Contented, okay.
1: Innocent. Yeah, Contented, yeah. innocent. He also would describe very good.
0: He was also described as very good, right? What else? He was alive, okay. And in the sort of the double sense of that,
1: he was really alive. What was that? What
0: with God. Walk with God, um, let's hold that one off. My third question has to do with the relationship of God and man. But just the condition of man himself, he was living, uh, he was in a very good state, scripture says. He was contented.
1: Worked in
0: there was that, uh, well, that again gets some kind of relationship thing. Um, well, why did I bring that in? Well, let's just, let's just stop it right there. What was the condition of man after the fall?
1: <laughs> Discontent. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the biggest problem. Discontent. Yeah. He knew he was
0: naked. He yeah. knew he was naked. What was the result of that, by the way?
1: Shame. Shame. Guilt.
0: We um, already mentioned fear. That can come into here, actually. Come in at this point. What else? Dying. Dying. Death. Any of those phrases that we associate. We um, call it mortal.
1: weapons. was not a dying creature is before. Sin. sin was a part of this world as opposed to if
0: you might put it over here, righteousness.
1: You better put mortality on the other side. Right? No, I didn't put I just put living. I'm just saying you don't want reward you can't put okay. mortality on both sides. I'm capable
0: of dying. Well they've all heard everyone from uh here uh, from uh, Belmont is pretty much sure of my Genesis class, so I don't think. So. Okay, we all know what we're here. talking about there. Man was not immortal over here. Given that, I think that's Okay, that's man's condition. And finally, just quickly, what about man's relationship with God before the fall? What kind of things characterized that relationship? What kind of things characterized it? God Gardner, okay. Which then—that's good. How did that? What does that mean about his relationship then to God?
1: Well, I'm On good, I'm good, I'm good, right? <laughs> good terms, okay.
0: I hear the word harmony comes into that, right? Keep going. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship, definitely. All right, There was this close. Sweet communion, as sometimes brethren have talked about, between God and man. Well, there was no rupture. Are uh, so you talking
1: about God and man, or the condition? Of God. Uh, point. What's your uh, point? My point is, in addition to that of the whole very thing. good condition. There was no enmity any in any of any the, the relationships. Right. Okay, but I'm talking now specifically about a man's
0: relationship, okay? Alright, what else would characterize it? There was obedience. And I'll just throw one more in this, which I think we all recognize. The state of their relationship might be characterized by the word love. The word love, and all of that would pertain to at least an opportunity for that to grow and to be nourished in the environment as well. Alright, let's go for the contract then. After it, what was the state? What was the condition of man's relationship with God after he sinned and before God intervened? Alienated. Alienated. By which you mean? Okay. Disobedient. Okay, disobedient. We'll go back to your word there. Go ahead, what else? We'll come back to that word. Anyone else? What else characterized that relationship? Fear. Fear, not love anymore. Fear, he trembled. He hid behind the rocks and the trees. Shame and guilt. Shame and guilt. Okay, that comes from above again, of course. Shame and guilt. He couldn't stand before God. He was ashamed of himself. That didn't characterize his relationship before. What
1: else?
0: Lust. Lust? Okay, all that relates to in the terms of sin, right? The very emotions, the very impetus towards disobeying God.
1: Contrary um, to the uh, uh, action of hiding, that's, that's an act of separation. Okay,
0: now well, that's where we get into the word alienation. He was separated from God. Do you think that he still had the same fellowship that he had before his sin? If he did, why was he hiding from God? Why was he afraid of God? So all of us realize then, brothers and sisters, just to sum this up, that before (laughs) sin entered entered into the world, there was truly a very good state. There was harmony and peace. There was fellowship, a closeness of association with God, uh, between God and man, and the whole creation was peaceful. That sin, that rebellion against God in the garden, produced a world which was altogether different. And notice that many of you started working for opposites, to the terms you saw, because in fact it was opposites. What man had before was no longer to be. His condition, by the way, and this is where death comes in here, he was alive in the garden. He was a man doomed to death when he sinned. He was before in that sweet harmony with the Father. Afterwards, he couldn't even stand
1: in his presence
0: because he was afraid. So a breach, so to speak, occurred in that relationship. And it reminds us very much of the words that Paul uses in Romans 5, 12, by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin And so death passed upon all men. Now, Brother Williams, in a very, in his lucid and eloquent style, sums it up something like this. And if you don't mind several, quite a number of times, in fact, during this little discussion, I'd like to let Thomas Williams speak for himself. This is how he describes this contrast which we have just discussed. He says, by sin, they were stricken with mortality passing from a happy, healthful state into one of sorrow, pain, and death, ending at last in darkness of death itself. The causes that would produce death were set at work in their physical nature as soon as the law of righteousness was broken. Thus the stream of human life, having been poisoned by sin at its head, has carried sickness, sorrow, pain, and death down through all its channels until universally it is appointed unto men once to die, and death has passed upon all men. It is, it is safe, therefore, to conclude that had not God's love moved him to offer a means of redemption, all the race would have gone down to dust under the sentence, unto dust thou shalt return, there to remain eternally. I know, and quoting now from the Apostle Paul, I know, the Apostle Paul says, that in me that is in my flesh knoweth, dwelleth no good. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is the universal cry of man, the spectacle presented by human life past and present is a world shrouded in the gloom of death, with its vast millions being carried down as by an ever restless and resistless stream into the dark depths of the dismal grave. Such is the condition, truly, I think we'll all agree, of the present state of man, because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And I would suggest, brethren and sisters, we need to savor this point. We need to reflect upon this stark contrast before the sin and after. Because, as I said before, Thomas Williams spends three quarters of his book trying to demonstrate how dark a contrast that is, and how hopeless man is in reality because of his sin, and how desperately indeed he stands of God's promised redemption. To quote just one other passage, man, through sin, having fallen from the exalted position in which God had placed him, became an outcast an alien from God and in the language of the Apostle Paul was without hope and without God in the the world. He was then so far as he himself was concerned hopeless and absolutely powerless to save himself. He had fallen, he was lost. While he had thus brought evil into the world, dethroned himself and become the subject of sin resulting in the deplorable history of human affairs which followed, he placed himself in a predicament to become the subject of divine mercy. This gave scope for the manifestation of the love of God to show that his kinder mercies are always manifest towards those who will, who will believe his word and obey his commandments. He will not leave man to die under the, du- under the sentence and go down into the dust without hope, but he comes to his rescue, opening up a new relationship so, we arrive at our second point, God's merciful provision of a way out. How did God give hope to man? In what way did he plan to rescue his creatures, as Thomas Williams says, out of this hopeless, this utterly hopeless, sin-filled, dead-end state? That's the question, brethren and sisters that he was trying to confront the people of his day with that we ourselves have to confront as people looking at our own condition and looking, therefore, to God for the promised redemption and hope. Now, I think we all recognize, brethren and sisters, I don't intend this to be an instruction class, merely to remind us of things that are common belief and teaching amongst us. That the hope that God held out to man here, the way out, if you like, of being outside the garden, that he might be brought back to the tree of life and gain indeed eternal life, was held out to man through God's promises in the covenants of promise that he made to the faithful of old. For example, if you just turn with me to Genesis 13, just to remind ourselves of this act of God one of these great acts of God which is picked up elsewhere in Scripture and made the subject of their hope. Genesis chapter 13, we remember this passage. Verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abraham after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed act for, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And as Thomas Williams, as Robert Roberts, as Thomas, John Thomas, all argued, and as we would argue if we were talking to our friends, Abraham died and never inherited what God promised to him. Therefore, there remains for him a day when he must, by virtue of God's promise, be raised out of the dust of the earth to inherit these things. So in those promises, and again in chapter 17, let's look there, not only in those promises, but in the covenant that he made with Abraham, are embodied these great and precious this great and precious promise of salvation. Chapter seventeen, seven and eight, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and thy and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land where then thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So we see presented before the faithful of old in this day, the way out. God had promised to Abraham and his seed these great and precious promises. David also, to whom, of whom, who was one of the offspring of Abraham, in his own day was also granted a similar grace and precious promise concerning his throne and concerning his own appearance um, and presence in that, before that throne. And in this hope, David all his life rejoiced, as Psalm 16, for example, shows us. If you turn there, please. Psalm 16. words to reflect upon because they embody the hope that David had as he looked at a bleak and forlorn future, so to speak, in the dust of the earth. This is what gave him hope and gladness of heart. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So as David himself realized, as we shall see in a moment and consider in a moment, upon one who should yet come, through that man, David had great rejoicing and hope, knowing that God would not leave his soul in hell neither the man to come and because of that man neither David. And so Paul can say in Acts 26 and say several times in his discourses with the Jews and as he stood before the Gentiles that the one thing that he stood in hope of which was derived from the promises that, the fathers, that was made unto the fathers. Verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, and to which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? That hope of Israel was the hope that a man in this condition might be raised up from the dead, from the bleak, endless grave, and be given life. So I might just quote again from another portion of Thomas Williams. He says there is no use trying to evade the force of fact and Scripture teaching on the subject of what is death. We are all subject to its universal power. The rich and the poor, the great and the small, the old and the young are subject to death's tyrannical reign. To call it a friend does not change the fact that it is a foe. That when it enters our homes to snatch from us our wives, husbands, children, and friends is the most unwelcome visitor and one against which we would close our doors had we the power. You may talk and talk to to the grief-stricken one who bends over the corpse in the coffin about death being a transition from a world of woe to a world of weal, and the distressed one may try to cherish the thought and proclaim the belief, but the tears cease not to flow. The pain and the anguish written upon every feature of the mourner's Refuse to give place to joy and gladness. Tell us not then that death is the voice of Jesus to the call of his arms. It is the voice of sin, for sin brought death. And so on. When death is viewed in its proper light, he continues, it is seen that for the dead, resurrection is the only hope, and that resurrection out of death is the gate to glory, the beginning of another life. Therefore it is said, by man came the resurrection of the dead. And so, mortal man was given a way back, a way out from his hopeless state, hope that he could escape, if you like, the cruel bondage of death in the grave, or sheol, as the scriptures speak of it. And we also realize in this, that this hope had its basis in a sacrifice. For example, as Paul says to the brethren in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. It was, there was a basis. The basis was in a man who had been sacrificed and in that man's sacrifice and through that man God would reconcile the world there was no other way there was no other way that hope could be obtained and it's the realization of this hope rather this hope was predicated upon that sacrifice and of this I'd like to just read a selection again that Brother Williams gives or what he has to say about this The fall of our first parents incurred the penalty of death upon the principle that the wages of sin is death. God, in His own goodness, extended mercy. Yet there must be a vindication of His own justice before He can grant the world's redemption. Sin had caused all the trouble. God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. His justice requires the death of the sinner. While His mercy provides means of remission of sin, and purification of the sinner in a way to spare the sinner and yet not defeat justice. Only divine wisdom can blend together mercy and justice. If the penalty on our first parents had been inflicted without any merciful provision, all would have been forever lost. Think about that. But redemption from under the penalty of the law by sacrifice was arranged for. And in it, We have Christ as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it was shown in the beginning, even in the beginning, that through him redemption would take place of what had been lost by Adam at the first. God therefore predicated his covenant with man upon the sacrifice for sin by which alone man's restoration to favor could be effected in the very nature of the case, then, a covenant provided by God for fallen man demands a sacrifice which will admit of reconciliation and atonement between God who is pure and man who is sinful. And this must take place before the covenants of promise can be realized. And He goes in to demonstrate this point. So, we see that through the sacrifice of Christ, God was able to accomplish, if you like, the redemption that he promised to Adam and Eve, in a sense through the promise that he made via the serpent, to Abraham, to David, and to all the faithful. Death was through the sacrifice of Christ and the grave. They were defeated. They were conquered. This man has become the resurrection and the life because of his victory. Because of his obedience, and to all that believe in this man, lock it, brethren and sisters, for those held prisoner in its cold embrace. So, if we can begin to
1: appreciate that,
0: the wonders of modern uh, engineering. At any rate, brothers and sisters, if we can understand this vital principle that sin and death has held men, in this sense, if you can, if you can enter into this feeling, sin and death has held men captive. It has captured them and it it's dragging them down without anyone to stand in between to the grave, to the dust of the earth, to an end. And God in this man has given the power to break the bonds of death if you like. So that Paul himself can quote from Hosea, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And So Thomas Williams himself says, and to me, it's a delightful thought, and I hope you can just capture this particular little point. It's a side light, but it's, it's a beautiful thought. If you can think for a moment about Adam and Eve and Abraham and David and all the faithful worthies of old, they stood on, if you like, the former side, before this great event had transpired in about 30 AD. They stood looking to it in the future, and based upon that man's obedience and his sacrifice, lay all their salvation if that man did not fulfill his purpose all that they had hoped for which was redemption from the dust of the earth would have been ended if Christ be not raised then all have perished
1: that's it,
0: the end point Now is Christ risen from the dead. By man came the resurrection of the dead. And he says in light of this little thing, he says, thousands of ancient worthies had by faith reached down to him and put all their trust in his faithfulness unto the death of the cross. They had gone into the cold embrace of death and the dark chambers of the grave with the only hope that he would go there with a power the power of perfect obedience to break the jaws of death and the barriers of the grave and thus become the captain of salvation to set the captives free. Think about that. It's just a side point to reflect upon. This was the faith of the ancient worthies. They looked forward and they put their trust in that man that he would accomplish all that God had appointed for him. That they, based upon His work might not sleep forever in the dust of the earth. But it is not, brothers and sisters, as we realize, it's not just enough to know that God has provided a way escape from this. Nor is it enough to know that Christ is the means by which a man might escape all of this. Men are fallen creatures. They are, in a sense, separated from God. They're not in full fellowship with Him. They're in a lost state, as uh, Thomas Williams has termed it, and others. And in their present natural state, they're not fit for fellowship with God. I'm afraid, brethren and sisters, this is the naked truth. Men in their present state are only fit to live in the dust of the earth. So of necessity, a change must come about. A change must come about for those men living in this state of things. And so Jesus said to Nicodemus, even that Jew, he said to the man, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of the water and spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God. And so the exception, the accept, the accept taught man, of necessity a change must be required. So, please understand this important point, brethren and sisters. Men in Adam cannot lay claim to that hope in Christ. Men in Adam can only lay hope, lay their hands on, so to speak, the grave and its darkness. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a fitting point to bring this in and to look at this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, a very important statement is made. For one of for those of us who would at some point contend against the teachings of this world that there is some hope Uh, outside of Christ that all men will get whatever God has promised. Here is the stark, vital statement of the Apostle Paul. Verse 11 and 12. He says, chapter 2, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time Ye were without Christ. Without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you had no part in the nation to whom the promises were made. Strangers from the covenants of promise, you weren't associated with them. And so what was the effect? Having no hope. In Adam, you have no hope. If you stay like that, you have no hope. And you have no God in the world. That's how hopeless the situation that man is born into. And except the man come out of Adam, that is, except he come out of this natural uh, state of man, subject to his, his whims and desires, except he change and come into Christ through baptism, identifying himself with that sacrifice, he will remain outside the promise and will have no hope of resurrection to life. If you can reflect upon those things, and recognize the necessity for this. Oh, I might read also... Let me just um, turn over a couple pages back to Galatians 3, which we all know, but if I could just read it in this context. Men outside of Adam have no hope, not being related to the covenants of promise. So, if I now may contrast it, verse 27... For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And verse 29, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Out of Christ no hope. In Christ, identifying yourself with the man's sacrifice for sin. There is hope because you become the heirs of the Abrahamic promise, which is, the resurrection and inheritance of the land. Is it now not apparent, brothers and sisters, that God deals with men that are in this condition through the promises that he has made and within that framework in a sense, brothers and sisters, that promises that he has made and set for men can be considered, if you like, a law of this world. Men who come under the scope of this law, this uh, natural progression of things in Christ, and that's what I mean by the term law, the natural outworking of things in Christ, will become subjects of a resurrection, hopefully to life to them being under that law of life, if you like, is the assurance to these people, to the assurance to us, brethren, who are under this law, that in the natural order of things in this state, the outcome is for us, brethren, that if we die, we will be raised out of the dust of the earth. We will not be left within the confines, if you like, of the grave. That is the hope, the natural outworking of those associated with the the promises. But for men not related to the law of life, who, as Paul speaks of, are under the law of sin and death, well, the natural outworking in their world is death. The solitude of the grave. That's all they can hope for. That's the natural progression that will lead them To which it will lead them. But for men in Christ, under the law of life, if you like, with the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the natural order of things is a resurrection. And with the view, of course, to life eternal. Now, if you can begin, and if you have begun to enter into that stark contrast between the hopelessness in Adam, and the hope-fulfilledness in Christ. And to understand this outworking of the natural laws, if you like, that operate within those two separate spheres of living. They are two separate spheres of living. Different things operate for those that are outside of Christ, and for those in Christ. If you can begin to appreciate the Gospel through this framework, or perhaps already do, then the natural inclination, when one uh, looks at this subject, the natural implication or inclination is to see it within this nice little compartment of these two states And that laws operate, as I just demonstrated now, within these two separate states. And according to these laws, the natural outworking will be one thing or the other. John Thomas, in Elphys Israel, spoke about the constitutions of sin and the constitutions of righteousness, about being in Adam or in Christ. Brother Roberts did. Thomas Williams, Likewise, having learned the truth from Robert, Robert, appreciating how deadly that argument was to the world that was deluding itself with the idea that when we go to the grave, that's uh, that's something great to go to the grave because it's the gateway to heaven. <coughs> he realized the deadly power of that argument. Said, "You're hopeless outside of Christ. There is no hope but in the resurrection." from the dead. And in that alone can a man find life. I'd like you to bear with me for yet another quotation. I ask you to bear with me on this one because it's a little longer than the ones I've read before. But I'd like to quote it as it appears to me to express Thomas Williams or allow Thomas Williams rather to express This understanding, this usage, if you like, of the two laws, uh, of these two uh, states. He says, Now in order to realize the great importance of salvation, we must understand our real state. What we need salvation from and to. This has already been shown in the broad sense in dealing with man's mortality and promised immortality. But it will be well now to consider the matter of a man's relationship to God in a specific sense. The first question is, when did salvation become a necessity, and from what cause? This will take us back again to Eden, where we shall find find the first parents of the race in sweet communion with God, blessed with the glories of paradise, no sin, sickness, pain, sorrow, or death. It was possible for them to ascend from a very good state to a better one, to a best one. But that could not have been termed salvation, redemption, or restitution. Before these terms could become applicable, man must become a lost creature, cast out of paradise, a subject of sorrow, pain, and death. And when did man fall into this state? As soon as our first parents sinned and were cast out of paradise. Then they were in the lost state. Then they needed salvation. And here we are at the head of the stream, right at the cause of trouble. A curse was pronounced which the Apostle says passed upon all men. So we may say that since Adam was the federal head of all that race, when he fell, all fell. When he became an outcast from Eden, all became outcasts. When he became alienated from God all became alienated. For what is the race but the multiplication of Adam and Eve? Not in the very good state of creation but in the lost state. The sin which caused this fall of the race has woefully abounded during nearly 6,000 years and the whole world lieth in wickedness before God. Quoting a little later, this alienated state On the one hand, is declared to be the lot of all who are without Christ, and this brings to mind the two relations man is found in, expressed in the word, in Adam and in Christ. The former represents the dominion, or the constitution, of sin and death, the latter the dominion, or constitution, of righteousness and life. So long as we remain in the former relation, all we can hope for is what sin's dominion can give us that is sorrowful life of alienation from God, ending in death and an irrevocable graves. But if we change our relationship, we thereby pass from, and he's quoting from Jesus in the Gospel of John, from the, in quotes, constitution of death into the constitution of life, the constitution of being in parentheses, putting off the old man with his deeds and putting on the new man to walk in the newness of life. The covenants of promise are the covenants of God, the covenants God has made with men since the fall in Eden, first in the promise to the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, second with Abraham, third with David, and these all embody the gospel. To to be a stranger to these is to be without hope and without God in the world. God will not become reconciled to man in Adam. He was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself skipping down a little further and concluding. In Christ, then, is the atonement and only in the relationship expressed by the phrase in Christ will God accept us as his children. Natural birth confers no title to future life. Hence the words of Jesus, you must be born again. This new birth, which may be said to be an introduction into mental and moral state first and finally into a new nature and mortality, constitutes us new creature's. Therefore, the Apostle says, if a man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things, that is, the things pertaining to the Adamic lost state, have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Had not the old been blighted by sin, recreation, reconciliation, redemption, restoration, and restitution would have been meaningless words in Scripture vocabulary. But since man was started upon his career in a state of conciliation with God, then fell from the state, these words become pregnant with all the gospel that the gospel means and is intended to accomplish. Since when we we open our eyes to a realization of our existence in the world, we find that we have been born into a lost state under the shackles of sin and death. And when we sin, they become are firmly upon our well are more firmly upon ourselves by actual sin and we see the defects the disabilities the misfortunes of our birth make it necessary that we be born again in order to renounce our allegiance to the old constitution of sin and death and become identified with the new constitution of righteousness and life so this is a natural inclination brethren and sisters a natural
1: way of perceiving and explaining our old relationship and our new relationship.